0: Hey, everyone, this is Rudy Fernandez from Creative Outhouse. In part two of my conversation with Brett Bruin, we talked about, what else, politics and the upcoming 2020 elections. Brett worked for President Barack Obama as the head of global engagement and frequently speaks about politics and crises. Hearing his ideas on how candidates need to communicate was awesome. He even gets into what President Trump does well that has led to his success in politics, impeachment proceedings notwithstanding. That part for me coalesced so many different ideas about the president and his brand. Anyway, check this out. Welcome to Marketing Upheaval.
1: You're listening to Marketing Upheaval from Creative Outhouse.
0: Brett, I wanted to take advantage of having you on the podcast to ask you about the upcoming political contest. This is going to be an enormous Campaign season. So, what are some basics every candidate ought to know in regards to crisis? Because you know they're going to be encountering something.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I think you should first and foremost have a pretty intrusive uh, investigation into not only you know things that you may have said or, or did, but what could be you know used. We've seen so many examples recently of. Videos or audio that has been sliced and diced to suggest that you said something or did something, even if in actual fact you didn't. Same goes for your cybersecurity. And we saw this play out in the French presidential campaign where the Russians engaged in this kind of tactics. They hacked into the Macron presidential campaign emails. And, and you know, you often see companies, and we've got clients that, that have very high-tech, secure communication systems, but their employees are still sharing information on personal email and personal uh, social media accounts on on apps that is very insecure. And so understanding, you know, those vulnerabilities and not just, you know, building better security protocols and, and the like, but preparing for those eventualities where you might have to be in a situation where you're battling against truly fabricated information And how you do that, how you ensure that you're not on the defensive, as I think the Macron campaign, and and it's a case study that U.S. uh, candidates should really look closely at to glean some of the the ways in which they anticipated and they prepared for that. You know, I'd also say the challenge these days of the media uh, environment being so intense and, and so occupied with whatever is the newest new news. And it's tough to get in there and and it's tough to try to break through. We've seen presidential candidates struggle with this. The old tactics, the old tradecraft of campaigning really does need to be rethought. And I think Elizabeth Warren is, is one example of, you know, her sort of selfie political campaign strategy of you know, just getting as many selfies as you can so you're spreading throughout this uh, social network of all of the people who've attended your events, I think you gotta get more creative.
0: You talked about old school methods. What are some differences, you think, in terms of campaigning now versus campaigning in the
1: past? Uh, well, I think one, the speed. Uh, the speed with which these crises emerge. And this is something that we've talked to a lot of clients about, is you no longer have the luxury of time and you know one of the uh, tactics that we encourage our clients to engage in is understanding who are either your adversaries or your potential adversaries figure out what are they focused on and in a political campaign this is easy enough to do because as you track that focus as you track the frequency with which they're making those attacks the ferocity with which they're making attacks you start to get a picture of well, maybe I'm next, or maybe this is sort of the next issue that they're going to latch on to, versus I think one of the mistakes, whether it's candidates or companies uh, make, is that they tend to have, you know, social listening up, media monitoring up, but they're only tracking essentially themselves or maybe, you know, their industry or issue. And, and you need to have a much more expansive view of where risks could emerge because, you know, quite frankly, it's not just uh, limited any longer to your sector or to your company or to your candidacy. It could come out of left field and trying to figure out you know, where those vulnerabilities, where those hot button issues are and, and how do you keep tabs on them so that you're not caught as off guard as perhaps you would be if, if it um, came out of the blue.
0: Now, that's a good point. You have to look at how your opponent is attacking others And that'll help you prepare for how you'll be attacked. I guess you have to monitor the whole media landscape to see where you might be vulnerable. Well, let me ask you, since, you know, Georgia, where I live, it's going to be a huge battleground state. Uh, We have two Senate seats up. It's also a state that's moved somewhat more purplish over the last few years. So I'm anticipating some pretty fierce content being thrown at us. What do you think are some do's and don'ts in terms of messaging in this type of environment?
1: Well, I think first and foremost, you have to define yourself. And too few candidates define what they're against. And we've seen this play out on the presidential campaign trail. And there is a lot of room still. And I think there's oxygen, as my um, colleague at the Global Situation Room and former Obama um, branding expert uh, Johanna Maska says, "You know, it's all about that oxygen." And so, offering in the spirit of Obama, the, the change, the hope. But what does that look like today? What does that that aspirational message look like today? I think we've also seen, interestingly, in the form of this young Swedish environmental activist, sixteen years old, who has you know challenged some of the the orthodoxy, the world leaders uh, on these issues. And so you know, why are we not seeing more candidates, not just, you know, in terms of the old tactics of a Green New Deal, not speaking to the merits of it so much as, you know, the Green New Deal is kind of like the old New Deal. It's it's offering a plan and the like, but it also requires from a communication standpoint, I think the kind of adventure, the kind of ambition that you, you see uh, with Greta Thunberg and, and her voyage across The Atlantic in a boat with with some of the ways in which you're not just talking about these ideas, you're living them, you're showing them. So I think we have to, as candidates and as, as companies as well, look at how we don't just tell, but we are able to show we are able to live out some of those values and some of that vision.
0: So how do you do that and still come across as authentic? You take this young woman, for example, she's a private citizen, and so it's easy to see her motivations are because she's passionate about what she does. But if a politician or a candidate does it, you automatically have that sense of, oh, he or she is just doing it because they're running for office. So how do you bridge that? How do you make it feel more authentic, you know, so that it doesn't feel just like a modern day kissing a baby type thing?
1: Well, I, I think it is this idea and, and you know it's it's ironic because Patrick Jepsen, that former chief of staff to Princess Diane I had conversations about how in some respects obviously not in, in all respects, Donald Trump had the appearance of authenticity and one not dissimilar from Princess Diane. And by that we meant you had someone who was speaking seemingly in an authentic way, seemingly in a direct way, whereas Hillary Clinton, whether you like her or not, was much more measured in her comments. She was stiffer and, and structured in what she was saying, which does make it more difficult to resonate. And, you know, I have talked about before how brands, candidates, he'd almost be like the the skyscrapers in Mexico City. It's less about being a very cemented and strong brand as it is having that sway. If you want to take a lesson from the Trump playbook, it is the ability to, not everything he says is perfect, nor should for companies or for other candidates, everything they say be perfect. There is an attractiveness to those errors and, and to something that is less than polished or refined. Obviously, Trump takes it to an extreme, but I do believe that as we see everything today, we expect to see everything today because of um, social media, because of that constant presence of, you know, selfies and filming and do you know, capturing everything we do, we want more authentic experiences. I talk about how information is less institutionalized now. And so, You know, the old concept, and this comes back to crisis management, the notion that you write up your press release and then you deliver it to the news outlet who then gives it to the news anchor who incorporates it into their evening broadcast is pretty outdated. You have to be able to communicate this across social media. You have to be able to communicate this in a a way where someone else can come with a phone and capture information that or images that, that would show that you aren't being fully transparent or that that you perhaps have some level of hypocrisy in your comments. And, and so that authenticity is, is not just a nice to do, it is a neat.
0: Wow. I just had an aha moment. You're right. People crave authenticity more and more. And here we have a president who mostly speaks in an unscripted, Unpolished way, and he tweets in an unscripted, unpolished way, and because he's doing that, people are more willing to forgive when he let's say is less than accurate
1: absolutely and and it's coming you know back to this concept of of reservoirs of goodwill and the way that I would describe you know trump's descent down the escalator in Trump Tower launching his presidential campaign was essentially to say you know. Yiddish, New York uh, parlance, you know, I'm a schmuck. That's who I am. (laughs) And it's, you know, hard after that to fault him because he's pretty much put it out there. This is who I am. And now what do you have? Whereas, you know, and obviously for other candidates and, and companies, it's not necessarily a smart communication strategy to go out with or lead with I'm a schmuck or we're schmucks. But I would say that there is a lesson to be taken from that experience of saying, no, we're not perfect. We, you know, if I go back to Chipotle, we've, <laughs> we've got errors in our supply chain. We will fully admit it and we will dedicate ourselves harder, more aggressively to, to fixing them. But, and, and there's this, you know, analogy you may have seen in the talks that I've given of, you know, what would I have done if uh, Samsung had come to me before the Galaxy Note 7 debacle. And cell phone batteries, weakness you could identify even without a degree in uh, cell phone technology, which I do not have, Mm -hmm. but thinking about it and saying, okay, well, cell phone technology is kind of like a lunar mission. Not everyone is going to succeed. Not every initiative or endeavor is going to succeed, but it's always about pushing the frontiers of what's possible. And so stick with us. And we will give you the latest and greatest technology. We will learn from the safety you know, mistakes, just like you know, with the Challenger disaster I remember so vividly as a young boy. Um, we will learn from that. But we will not stop in our pursuit of getting you that new technology. So stick with us. And even if I can only impact 10% of consumers, the Galaxy Note 7 disaster is is estimated to cost Samsung 17 billion dollars. So I use this as an example to say if I can only impact 10% of consumers, that's 1.7 billion dollars that I've been able to save the company, something tells me that would cover at least half of the cost of my crisis communications work.
0: Well it's funny you say that we just passed the 50th anniversary of the moon landing and I had uh, I was reading some reading some information about it and I I came across A speech that Nixon was to give in case it didn't make it, and it's online. You can read it. So they had a speech prepared in case the mission failed. Maybe because government deals more with a real crisis, they tend to have more of that crisis mindset.
1: I draw from my experience uh, on the National Security Council and say that it really is essential for uh, companies to adopt more of a national security. Mindset. It's this the idea that you you do have to track those you know, issues that are happening. You do have to build more, not just you know scenario plans, but actual scenario countermeasures to use in those situations. Because you won't have the time. You won't have uh, the luxury of being able uh, to build this on the fly. One of the points that I would leave the audience with is. You know the notion of applying the right medicine at the wrong time. And yeah. so often what you see in these crisis management scenarios is not just, oh, I <laughs> I had a great plan. In fact, we detailed it with excruciating uh, detail in our 150-page crisis management book. But when it came time to actually execute on that, there is the lag, the time lag of trying to then get it off the ground. Well, first getting agreement, okay, we're going to do that, and then getting it off the ground and building it and then implementing it. And by the time it's actually moving out into having an effect, the crisis has moved on.
0: So with regards to marketing, communications, and crisis management, what on the horizon excites you most and what concerns you the most?
1: Well, what excites me most is how quickly things are changing. And you're seeing just whole industries that from one year to the next are being completely upended. And so anything seemingly is possible. What scares me, and, and I come back to this idea that we are living in an age where risk has become a constant, where the ability to fabricate facts is pretty sophisticated. and, and You've just got to, I think, have mind shift in how we are looking at crisis management from one where, okay, we'll go out with the firefighters and we'll douse the flames and we go back to normal. It's no longer that luxury of living in an episodic or even, you know, rarer occurrence of crisis. These are going to become more regular, just like the hurricanes, they're going to become more uh, ferocious and intense. And we've got to develop new tools. We've got to develop new ways of thinking about them that almost you know, girds us for the world of much more ferocious reputational risk. And that's the challenge that we confront.
0: By the way, did you know they had category fives? I've never heard of those.
1: <laughs> I, just, I just found out about that too. I could talk to you for hours. You bet. Thanks a lot, Rudy.
0: Well, that was part two with Brett Bruin. Thanks for listening to Marketing Up People from Creative Outhouse. If you want to learn more about the Global Situation Room, visit globalsitroom.com or follow Brett on Twitter for his latest insights on the latest events. For show notes, previous episodes and previews to upcoming episodes, visit slash podcast And if you like this podcast, get on your favorite podcast app and give us 5 stars, subscribe and share it with your friends. Our producer is Susan Cooper. Special thanks to Gopal Swami and Acoustic Music for creating our earcon, to Jason Shablik for his audio advice, and to Jack D'Amato for helping us get bread on the show. Thank you, Jack. Well, that's it for this episode of Marketing Upheaval. And remember, if the current state of marketing has got you confused, don't worry, it's all going to change. See ya.